Hello and welcome to the Westminster Standard. This is Ryan Beasy. Today I am joined by an all-star panel of Professor Dr. Uh, Sean Rittenauer, a Professor of Economics at Grove City College, a ruling elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and teaching elder Nate Zanders, uh, a fellow presbyter here in Tennessee Valley Presbytery. And we're going to be talking about economics. Uh, yes, last uh, Sunday uh, we had seven or so Covenant College students around our dining room table. Uh, two of them were economics majors. And my daughter asked, what are economics? Which uh, got me thinking we should have a, uh, a panel on this to see how does the Reformed faith uh, interact with economics? What is our duty as Christians in terms of stewardship and uh, society? And to help me sort that out, we have uh, Dr. Rittenauer here. Uh, Dr. Rittenauer, uh, tell us a little bit of your background. You're a, a ruling elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, how did you come to the Reformed faith? Were you always were you reared in the Reformed faith? I was not. I had a uh, sort of uh, like the Beatles song, was sort of a long and winding road. Uh, but uh, I was I was baptized uh, in the Methodist Church, and I was in the Methodist Church until. I was about 15 uh, years of age. That would have been in the uh, early uh, 80s. And you know, about that time, the Methodist Church was increasingly going through some struggles about various issues. And um, my family, my, my parents decided it was time to, to, to leave the church and try to find uh, some expression that was more biblically faithful. Um, and, but we were just, you know, like evangelicals. So we ended up for a couple of years in a fundamentalist, independent fundamentalist Baptist church. Um, and, uh, didn't stay there long because of some, some challenges within that particular church body. Uh, but one thing that, that the Lord did use at that time and me was just really impressed upon me, like that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is true. And so all of our life should be uh, shaped uh, by and lived according to the scriptures, our understanding of who God is and our need for salvation. And so that was very helpful and very important at, at a particular period of time in my life. But then we were able to also kind of, in some sense, moved, move on before we accumulated a lot of, uh, to say, legalistic baggage that sometimes fundamentalism brings. And so I uh, spent some time in the Evangelical Free Church and then um, I was married in the E-Free Church. Uh, when I went to graduate school, uh, the church that seemed most like the E-Free Church was the Southern Baptist Church. So we attended a Southern Baptist Church. We were members there for a number of years. Um, but it would have been, well, in college, I went to um, uh, Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, which is a Reformed Church of America college. And of the three, I think it was the, the, the better most biblically faithful of the three colleges that they had at the time. And so that was probably my first exposure to anything called the Reformed faith. Um, I, I had never heard of the Reformed faith before that time, really, before I applied. And I thought, you know, this is a, they, they advertise a Reformed school. What does this mean? Uh, is it like for like a halfway house for former criminals or something? I'm not <laughs> really sure what it meant. And so we sent for the statement of faith and it was legit. It was biblical, I thought. So so anyway, went to that school, and that was actually also very, the Lord used that importantly too, because they really stressed um, developing a, a biblical Christian worldview about all of life. Um, so it, it kind of pushed it out of sort of, uh, shall we say, pietism 
into thinking Christianly about all things. And that's where I first became acquainted with economics. Um, I first became convicted that if I was going to do economics, I wanted uh, it to be, I, w- I wanted to make sure it was a discipline that was compatible with the Christian view of man, the Christian view of things. And so that's very important. But um, it wasn't until I got to graduate school and I, I, became, I became more and more interested in, in uh, shall we say, the, 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 the reform doctrine of salvation, soteriology. So, um, you know, God's sovereignty, God's election, um, uh, the perseverance of the saints, um, uh, limited atonement. And, but I was still sort of, I was Baptist in, in my thinking regarding, um, uh, well, regarding baptism, not so much, I was sort of ambivalent on church government, but um, I also became aware of J. Gresham Machen when I was in graduate school. And I was, so I started reading some of his work and, um, and so became sort of convinced uh, and, 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 and enthusiastic about what he was saying. And so then I, I subscribed to Banner Truth magazine and that really had a big influence on my thinking along reformed lines. And it wasn't until um, I got the job here at Grove City that I was in a place where there was a, a, an OPC church. Um, and so I was very excited to, to visit uh, the OPC church here and um we visited a couple like three other churches in the area on sunday mornings but in the evening we always came back to uh, covenant opc and after about a month we decided this is where we want to plan ourselves and it was the first time we ever were so excited because so many times in life we felt we had to kind of choose between uh sort of our understanding of what basically biblical preaching was versus basically biblical worship Mm. and you know, uh, if we if we're going to err on one side, we wanted to err on biblical preaching. But coming into uh, a, a, an actual Presbyterian, faithful Presbyterian church, the first time we felt we don't have to choose anymore. We have. It's like, do you want your right arm or your left? Exactly. And now we get both <laughs> arms, and yeah, we're very happy with that. And so we've been we've been here for uh, twenty, almost well, a little over twenty two years now, I think, and we're very happy. Um, so it's been. Jeremy- but very Jeremy good. Jones is the pastor there. That's right, Jeremy Jones, and also Ben Ward. Uh, we okay. about I don't know, goodness, time goes fast. Maybe four years ago, three years ago, uh, called Ben Ward as a second pastor. So we have uh, have two actually. A number of the members of the congregation I serve, Jeremy Jones was their pastor. Yeah, years ago when he was oh, here yeah. on the mountain. Right, right. So and and Nate, you're up in Louisville, Tennessee. That's right. At uh, yeah. Christ the King Church. Yeah, it's not it's not Louisville, Tennessee, even though it's spelled exactly the way that Louisville, Kentucky <laughs> is spelled. But uh, the first time I called it uh, Louisville, Tennessee, a, uh, a local uh, very sternly corrected me. Son, we're in East Tennessee. Yeah. We're not in Kentucky. So I was like, OK. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they call it the Louisville Slugger there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. So. That's right. Uh, well, uh, Professor Rittenauer, what is economics? Uh, that's a good question. There's many different ways you could look at it. On the one hand, you could say it's a social science, but then what does that mean? It's, 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 it's a social science where we investigate primarily how do people seek to uh, incre- uh, improve their situation of themselves and of their families uh, through voluntary exchange, through exchange. I think that's a good way to put it. Or we could say through production and exchange. 
so economics is, is, is about how people allocate uh, the goods that they have uh, in ways that satisfies their most preferred ends, how, however they define those and however they determine those. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it's about. And, and I would also say then, uh, you know, gleaning these principles, it, it helps us see how can, um, how can human society uh, develop, how can civilization develop, how can humans flourish in civilization uh, in this fallen world in which we live without necessarily descending into some type of barbaric struggle for survival? You know, how, how can we get beyond sort of a dog-eat-dog world, a dog-eat-dog struggle for resources and instead work together in the market division of labor so that everybody is better off and uh, everybody becomes more prosperous. Because dog eat dog is not very effective or efficient. No, no, no. I mean, even even for the dog that's on top uh, uh, for a brief period of time, that 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 person is on top always has to be concerned about other people are going to take violently his resources. So they have to devote a lot of resources just to protecting their wealth instead of actually producing more of what could benefit them. Okay. So um, who decides how we allocate those resources? There are a number of schools of thought on that, I'm sure. The classical school, Austrian school, Chicago school. Uh, would you distinguish those different schools? Because each of those are going to differ subtly. And of course, there's uh, there's worse schools than, than those three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, I would say that in, in, in many ways, what differentiates different uh, approaches to economics is, is their method, their, their starting point. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that one of the things that was important to me in college was when I, I, I was attracted to economics because I liked the, I liked the, uh, the questions that were being raised. And I like the type of um, analysis that you, we went through, the, the type of logical analysis that you go through to answer the questions. And um, it, it also was, re- I, I found it relatively, uh, I found it enjoyable and relatively easy. So sometimes those kind of go together. So I was really attracted to, to, to economics early on and thought this might be something I want to major in. But I wanted really to, to be certain that, 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 that economics was not primarily sort of game playing, intellectual puzzle solving. I wanted to make sure that it was something that was, was one, reflective of reality, and two, uh, reflected, reflective of, what, of reality as we see it in the scriptures. In other words, I didn't want to, you know, uh, dedicate my life to something that was going to be working contrary to what God says in his word. And so to me, uh, and, and so I, I wanted to do that in economics. And then um, at some point, probably my sophomore year, I discovered uh, the writings of Ludwig von Mises and the Austrian tradition. And it was really Mises' starting point that made me convinced that economics is real. It's not just um, hypothetical uh, intellectual game playing. And it is also, you, you can do economics in a way that is compatible with what God reveals about the created order and about who we are as people. And, and, and really, I think for me more than anything, it's, 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 the, it's the, um, the, the foundation of economic analysis that, that, that makes uh, the Austrian tradition different from, shall we say, the Chicago neoclassical school uh, and different from the Keynesian, uh, Keynesian framework. And then certainly even 
say, the Marxist uh, approach to economics or the historicist approach. Um, and so what Austrians, Austrians begin was simply the premise that humans act, they engage in purposeful behavior. And then they develop implications uh, of that behavior um, by focusing on the implications of, of real human action in real time and real in real uh, in the real world. So they don't presume full information. They don't presume that everybody is perfectly informed about all possible outcomes. The way you sort of you, you get the assumptions in say uh, the Chicago School when we're going to try to model the economy uh, mathematically, where we have to assume away all these uncertainties in order to uh, to to come to our mathematical conclusions. The Austrian school doesn't assume this. They just assume that people engage in purposeful behavior in, uh, in, in the midst of a world where the future is uncertain and where time matters. And uh, once we start with that, we understand that, well, if people act, when they choose to do one thing, they choose not to do something else. So, right, so when 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 someone chooses to go to worship on Sunday morning, they are actively choosing not to do something else. On the other hand, if they if they choose to, I don't know, if they choose to go boating on a Sunday morning, when they choose to go boating, they're also choosing not to go to worship on Sunday morning, right? So when we choose to do one thing, we're also choosing not to do something else. And so that tells us that action then also implies valuation, right? So people have to decide, well, what do they prefer to do on a Sunday morning? And their actions will demonstrate at that particular morning, in that particular moment, what do they really prefer to do for whatever reason, right? Um, and so action implies value. Action implies then a potential benefit and cost because when we act to do one thing, we hope to improve our situation. If we didn't think we could improve our situation from acting, we just wouldn't act. We just, we just keep doing what we were doing. Um, at the same time, uh, if we act to do one thing, we give up whatever we could have received from doing the other thing, right? So if I, if I have some money to spend and I buy a hamburger instead of an ice cream cone, uh, I'm giving up the value that I would get, the satisfaction from that ice cream cone. So every action uh, brings with it both a, an intended benefit, but then a cost, right? So then we have benefits and costs. We think of in terms of, okay, what if the benefit's greater than the cost, we call that a profit. If the benefit is less than the cost or the cost is greater than the benefit, that's a loss, right? So, so action implies these things in the real world, even if we don't have perfect information, even if time does matter, even if these actions are not instantaneous, all of those concepts are there in realistic human action. And, and, and so that we, we know these implications are true because we know that people do engage in purposeful behavior. And uh, part of my work is to sort of uh, develop and, and show more clearly the links between uh, the fact that we're made in God's image as purposeful actors. God acts purposefully. He makes choices. And because we're made in God's image, we do the same thing. That's part of our being uh, made in God's image. It's not the only aspect of our bearing God's image, but that's that's an important part. So um, I, I, really what distinguishes different schools of thought is this is, is the is the beginning point. Um, uh, part of part of the uh, say the methodological principles of the Austrian school is is noting that when someone acts, it's always a, it's an individual person that acts, right? It's it's not uh, action in the abstract that we're looking at. It's also uh, we don't we don't focus on groups 
in the sense that the, the groups don't act apart from people in the group, right? You, you wouldn't have a group of people. We, we wouldn't say that, the, you know, that, um, that, that the Rotary Club decided to do this if nobody in the Rotary Club did that thing, right? So, so uh, groups can act, but only, only to the extent that the individual members of that group act, right? So, so there's, a, there's a methodological emphasis on the individual in Austrian economics as well. But when we get to some of the other schools, like the, the Chicago school, the neoclassical school, they tend to begin with a series of assumptions that they, they will believe in choice, but they, in some sense, it's not really a choice because um, the, the conclusions are sort of baked in the cake because there's a presumption of perfect information or perfect knowledge that everybody already knows, everybody we're looking at already knows um, all of the future outcomes of potential action. They know all the prices of all the goods that could be produced. They know what the demand for those goods will be. They know the best technologies that are available. They, they have perfect information of all the relevant variables. So it's more like an engineering problem than an actual economic problem. Um, and that can get us to certain certain uh, conclusions that are similar. So for instance, uh, the, the, the standard Chicago School economist and Austrian economist would agree about the consequences of say uh, rent control or the consequences of minimum wage, or the consequences of, shall we say, excessively high taxation, um, and even to a certain extent on some of the consequences of, of, of uh, uh, significant monetary inflation. Um, but then there are going to be other things that they, um, that they don't see uh, because of the nature of their analysis. Um, both when they come to macroeconomics, both the Keynesian economists and the monetarists will tend to uh, focus on aggregate modeling. And so they will tend to forget methodological individualism, that, that all economic phenomena is a result of individual human action. But they will focus on the economy and GDP and total expenditure. And uh, to the extent that they can do the math, they can get the math right. But that glosses over uh, the a lot of economic phenomena, uh, so so they would tend to not see all of the negative consequences of monetary inflation because they only focus on the aggregate consequences to the price level or to uh, nominal GDP. They don't see how monetary inflation encourages individual entrepreneurs to invest incorrectly from the perspective of future demand, and so they don't see all of the problems that are entailed, all of the, all of the potential negative consequences that entail for monetary inflation. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a pastor. My, yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't take economic, I didn't take economics in undergrad or in seminary. Uh, I know it's a shocker that, uh, that we can't squeeze that in amongst the other things that we yeah, learned. Right. Pastors, they don't, they don't have rule in the uh, covenant after, seminary curriculum for a economics course. No, no. Uh, or, or RTS or anywhere <laughs> else. Um, so I, I went to seminary, got out of seminary, and went to the marketplace instead of going right into ministry. And uh, it was about that time that I, in 2014, that I discovered the Tom Woods show. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been a guest yeah. on that show a few times. I've, I, you know, when, when Ryan first emailed the three of us, I was like, where have I heard and seen this name before? And then I realized, oh, I've listened to those two interviews that Tom Woods did with Dr. Rittenauer. Right. So having said all of that, my, my just layman's reading and take of these different schools is that all the other schools seem to want to work with mathematics and models 
and the Austrians seemed to want to look at individuals and and look at their look at their actions. And the Austrians tend to um, not they, they tend to rely less on trying to predict all of these things that we can't that we can't predict. Um, would you was that a, is that a fair evaluation? Yeah, I, I would say so on on both fronts. Um, uh, there's a, uh, a, a, a highly regarded uh, historian of economic thought named uh, Roger Backhouse, uh, who once gave a lecture on um, Austrian economics and its distinctives. And he's not Austrian, but he would say that mm. the main difference between the mainstream and Austrian economics is, as you as you noted, modeling. That that the mainstream likes to model. Uh, economic relationships, and, and the Austrians don't. The Austrians tend to eschew models and focus on, as I said, just the fact that that all economic phenomena is a result of the actions of individuals. So they will say, okay, what is entailed in real individual human action, and 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 if we can find things that are common amongst all action, then then those general principles of action in general will necessarily apply when we engage in human interaction in the marketplace, right? And so that's how we move from human action to deriving actual economic laws that are true universally. And um, the, the, the mainstream, um, and, and, and therefore, because of that, the, the focus of economics is also, is also a little different. Uh, the focus of Austrian economics is not so much to predict, but it's to explain. It's to explain the laws that actually do constrain our economic activity. It's to explain why uh, certain things will result in cert certain causes will result in certain outcomes. It's, it's not uh, economics uh, in, in this understanding is not meant to allow us to say, well, okay, if we, um, if we lower, if the Fed works to lower interest rates by 1%, um, what percentage, by what percentage will this stimulate GDP, right? There is no quantitative exactness in human action. So trying to identify that sort of quantitative um, preciseness is sort of a fool's errand from, from our perspective. Um, and yeah. so uh, we would say that economics is not so, it, you know, Milton Friedman, the, the famous Chicago School economist famously said, you know, um, uh, a good, you know, positive economics is meant to identify theories that predict well, right? So it's about prediction where we would say, no, it's about finding, uh, deriving laws that help us explain well. Um, now, I would argue, interestingly enough, that that um, the more we find laws that are real, that helps us explain well, that also actually helps us to predict well and predict better, just not in the way that with the same exactitude that, 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 the, that the Keynesians or the monetarists would, would like us to. Um, I think, um, I don't know if you've heard of Russ Roberts, he has a Econ Talk, uh, a podcast with Liberty Fund, and uh, once I read an interview of him and he, he, had, he told this little joke. He said, how do you know that uh, when economists are joking? How, how can you tell when economists are joking? And the answer is when they use decimal points. Because so, mm. you can't, there's no way really for us to be so exact. And we say, well, if you do this, that's going to increase GDP by 3.7%. I mean, really, we can't say that. So we have to be, I mean, yeah. we know we're joking. We're, it's like we're winking, but we don't want to admit it. Um, and I think partly because... Uh, since the, you know, since the probably 1920s, uh, a lot of economists developed a sort of uh, inferiority complex. Uh, they, desper they desperately wanted to be seen as a science. Um, 
and, and a science and the more modern understanding of science, not just a, a formal study of something, but a, uh, a kind of a hard science, like say uh, physics or biology. And mm -hmm. uh, because of that, we thought, well, if we want to be scientific, we have to do what the scientists do. So yeah. we have to model like this. And, and it yeah. really was the Austrians say, well, no, uh, we can be scientific but we don't have to do what biology and physics does because our object of study is different. Yeah. You know, we're not looking at it, animals or it, it seems, it seems like the different schools, like they would view other academics, other people in other schools of academia as their peers. It seems like the Austrians are like sociologists are more of our, of our, peers whereas the other schools seem to think of themselves as being peers with the physicist or the you know the botanist yes. um yeah anyway that's just that's right i'm i'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because those, those are things that i that i feel like i've needed confirmed <laughs> my instincts have been just kind of churning under the surface about those things over the years yeah no i think that's right but we're most of the people that will watch this will be you know napark elders yeah. or members of, of a napark church so how would you, taking everything you've said so far, how would you connect the dots between economics, particularly the Austrian school, and say the cultural mandate, which we see in Genesis 1 and then reinstituted after the fall through Noah? How would we connect the dots between the two? Yeah, um, well, I, I try to do that um, in, in my work here. I teach Foundations of Economics, which is a, uh, uh, like an introductory class that um, is, is, is one of the social science classes that would count for the social science electives at Grove City College. And um, one thing I try to emphasize is, in some sense, I, I see I see two great theological justifications for economics as a discipline. Uh, one mm -hmm. is I, I understand I think we should understand that there are economic laws that are necessarily implied from the fact that we are rational actors. We engage in purposeful behavior. We apply means according to our ideas and perceptions to achieve ends. And that is something that we do because we're made in God's image. That's part of that's part of the created order. And therefore, the laws that, of economics that exist are also part of God's creation. Right? So I would say that, that just as the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, all of his works declare God's glory, the laws of economics declare God's glory. So we, we see evidence of God's glory in learning the laws of economics just as we do by learning the say the laws of thermodynamics or any other aspect of creation so that's one but then the second a great theological justification seems to me is that it, it helps us respond shall we say to the material aspect of the the cultural mandate the creation mandate that if we're called to be fruitful multiply and exercise dominion uh right now we're definitely i mean it, it what should one say Adam and Eve were called to do that in the type of scarcity that did exist in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but, of course, after the fall, scarcity has been greatly magnified. Uh, fulfilling the calling uh, for both men and women is more difficult, right? There's pain in childbearing. So being fruitful and multiplying is, is more difficult. Um, uh, the, the ground is cursed, and so it brings forth thorns and thistles. Uh, instead of naturally bringing forth uh, bounty. Uh, and so that makes uh, working and, and keeping the garden more difficult. And so um, we still have the mandate, as you said, it's reconstituted um, after the flood, but now we have to do this in, in, a, in, a, in a fallen world 
of aggravated, I call aggravated scarcity, right? So how do we do this, mm-hmm. right? Well, we could, we could just decide to say, you know what, I'm going to get what's mine and my family's and I'm going to hunker down. And if, if I see something that somebody else has that might help me, I can just reach out and take it. I just, I'll just claim it. Um, I will, uh, I'll name it and claim it and uh, I'll, I'll bring it into my uh, household. Um, of course, and that, that, that's socially destructive, right? That breeds uh, conflict. The worst case scenario, it brings violence, physical harm, death. Um, and it also greatly limits um, our ability to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, it, it, it limits our ability to be fruitful and multiply to um, just sort of a hand-to-mouth existence. So the question is, how, do, how, do, how can, can we get past that? Can we exercise fruitful dominion in a world of aggravated scarcity without either starving to death or killing one another? And I say, well, mm-hmm. it's economics that allows us to, it helps us to answer that question. It's economics that tells us that, well, if we, if we, you know, if, 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 if we don't, if we don't work, we won't eat, right? If there's a, there's a positive correlation between human labor and production and, and our own, and our wealth, right? Uh, if, um, you know, the, the soul of the diligent shall be made fat, one of my favorite verses. Um, and so, you know, I can't help it. I'm a little bit more diligent than others, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, 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 but there is that correlation. But then, then you say, well, okay, is there any way for us to, to, to go beyond just working and, and living hand to mouth from our own labor? Can we, in some sense, increase our productivity? Can we magnify that labor? And economics tells us, well, yes. If we participate in the division of labor, if we specialize uh, according to efficiency, then uh, not just I will benefit, but everybody who participates in that society will benefit because everyone is participating in uh, a line of production at which they are relatively efficient. Uh, and, And this is true, especially for the people that tend to be less absolutely efficient at everything, right? It allows people that even mm-hmm. are are not as good as at anybody, uh, not as good as at anything than anybody can still benefit from specializing in the good at which they are relatively most efficient. And when everybody does that, total productivity increases, and then we can exchange our product with one another so that everybody benefits. Um, and that's something that economics teaches us. Now, it is interesting mm-hmm. also, it's something that the human race sort of discovered, uh, human beings discovered this before we had economics and political economy, right? You go clear back to the original chapters of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Cain and Abel are described how? By what they do, right? Um, Cain was a tiller of the ground, and Adam was a keeper of livestock, keeper of sheep, and, and you find, oh, gee, they're identified by their their jobs, their what they did. Yeah. Um, and then if you go into uh, Genesis chapter four, where we have the offspring of Cain uh, and the generations of Cain, all these different people are identified by the things that they did. Right. Uh, Jubal yeah. was a musician. Uh, Tubal Cain was a metalsmith. And so it seems like from the very early human history, uh, specialization and the division of labor was something that was common to 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 human uh, to human yeah. life, and so um, in that sense, we see then this connection between what God says we are as purposeful behaviors, how we then live out our human action, what le- what what 
economic principles that we can derive. And so we're not, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation. Yeah. We can say, you know what? Economists have identified uh, these, these principles that are helpful for us as we try to uh, productively come together in society so that we can be fruitful and multiply without killing one another or starving to death. Yeah, the division of labor becomes so important to mankind that this is, in some sense, how we get surnames. Most people's surnames That's right. derive from some forefather's vocation. That's right. You know. Yeah. Um, but along, um, continue along the lines of of uh, you know the biblical story and and kind of grounding this in our our reform tradition. There, there's. Um, you know, the, the standards seem to be pretty clear about, I mean, we have a whole chapter in the Westminster Standards on the magistrate. Yes. Um, can you just elaborate for us? It seems like another difference between the Austrian school and other schools is what role the civil servant has in fiddling with or, you know, messing with the economy and, and setting things in one direction or another. So can you kind of expound upon yeah, that? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question, too. I think that... Um, uh, it, it's it's pretty clear, right, from from our standards that the the, the magistrate exists uh, as God's uh, as God's servant to uh, punish the evildoer and reward uh, reward the good, um, and he does this if we look at the scriptures by essentially uh, protecting people from aggression, protecting people from theft, from uh, from uh, violent aggression, from murder. Um, you don't find a lot of mandate in scripture for um, you know the um, the magistrate to be uh, engaging in price controls or regulative controls, right? The, um, I think uh, John Murray in his Commentary in Romans is is actually quite good on this, and uh, so I mean the magistrate is is not God, and so the magistrate mm -hmm. is is limited that the you know the magistrate is called to rule justice. So you can't rule with justice when you're taking somebody else's property. Uh, you can't rule with justice when you're just indiscriminately killing people or imprisoning people. And so there's definite limits on what the magistrate is able to do and called to do uh, by by God if he's to rule justly. And and again, that 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 rule. If you think about you know ruling justly, that would that includes um, allowing people to uh, to keep the property that they that they have acquired through lawful means, right? So the, the, mm -hmm. uh, their own labor, uh, the, the, the goods that they have produced, um, they, they, should be, uh, they they should be morally free from the threat of, uh, theft, uh, from the threat of, of violence, uh, from either the, uh, their fellow citizens or from the magistrate, the magistrate, you know, it doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless by majority vote. I didn't say that. Right. And so um, I think I think I so. So the the, the scripture, uh, our standards rightly understand the magistrate has a particular function and is limited by um, uh, by scriptures and the need to rule with justice. Um, whereas, mm -hmm. of course, if you, if, you, if you don't and, and of course, the, the Austrian uh, school um, yeah. of economy of economics um, uh, concludes that if we want a if we want a uh, vibrant uh, flourishing market division of labor, if we want um, uh, a society where people are uh, encouraged to and have the ability to 
um, accumulate capital and use it for productive purposes. Uh, mm -hmm. If we uh, have a society where we can develop technology and use it for productive purposes, if we have entrepreneurs that can engage in entrepreneurial activity for productive purposes, all of that requires private property. And so the Austrian tradition as a, as says, well, if we if we want human flourishing, we need to do these specific things such as participate in the division of labor, uh, yeah. cap, accumulate capital, use it to, for productive ends by entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. If we want to do all that, we need the institution of private property. Therefore, we need to have a state that's very limited. Now, of course, some would go so far uh, as say, OK, we any state. Um, is 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 illicit because um, you know the, uh, the state by itself is coercion. Um, I think I think to the extent that there is a magistrate, um, I, I'm one that I'm I used to I used to believe uh, that you know the public goods theory of the state. Um, I don't necessarily hold to that. I think that um, there are good economists have demonstrated that. Um, that, that a state is not necessary uh, from a public goods perspective. So I, I do think that it, 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 there, there's no economic argument uh, that, that there must be a magistrate. On the other hand, um, I think it's unlikely that at any given moment, that, that in any, for any given period of time, a society would, would exist without a magistrate. And so I think I, I think that for other reasons, there almost always is uh, there are there almost always are powers that be. And to the extent that there are powers that be, they're there because of God's providence. And, and we're called to to respect and, and honor them as such. Um, and, and at the same time, that doesn't mean that uh, if a magistrate exists because they're God's minister, everything they do is it you know, has god's okay i mean that's right I mean, we have to be we have to be able to you know discern right and wrong with wisdom in that case as well yeah, well that, that comes back came up oh go ahead nate go ahead ryan you preached on romans 13 recently so you're probably he mentioned romans 13 i figured you might yeah. be well I, I, i've slept since then so what i yeah. remember from but it, that that Recently, it seems like many, especially Reformed Christians have, or even Reformed Christians, have taken the view that if the magistrate says it and it is not sin, then we must comply. Yeah. But that's a very contemporary, it's not even a modern view, it's, it's a contemporary view. You go back to Charles Hodge in the 19th, even the, the late middle 19th century, yeah. he's not arguing for that view. Uh, where, where Do you know where that view came from, that unless the magistrate tells us to do something sinful— how did it become so common now? And, and I know this isn't a strictly economic question, but it is a, it's yeah. a puzzling origin question. You know, I, I actually don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know enough of church history to understand. Yeah. Uh, uh, and there, that, there may not be an intellectual history. history to it. It may have just been that's the easy view. Well, that could be. I mean, right. there may, it may not be nobody. It could be that, yeah, nobody's connecting the dots because there were no dots to connect. It just it's, here we are. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm sure, though, I bet you that I'll bet you that um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. But I, I imagine, you know, if to, to the extent that, say, even say Presbyterian churches in the 20th century uh, sort of became sort of pietistic and 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 shifted towards sort of uh, you know uh, sort of a more modernist uh, liberalist theological position, and Christianity is all about uh, you know living 
living the life, um, I can imagine that living the life includes, um, you know, following the magistrate as long as as, as we're not sinning. Um, but yeah. I don't know. I, I'd have to I'd have to take a look at it. I mean, I think there some people may argue that that Hodge was sort of an American, say, a more of American, an American gloss, and and that I mean, I, I haven't. Because Dabney on this point is horrible. Uh, uh, Robert Louis Dabney on on the magistrate is horrible, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a surprise given uh, other other aspects of Dabney. You would think he would be uh, less that Hodge yeah. would be the one that is uh, submit yeah. all the time. Right. Um, and of course, great J. Gresham Machen uh, dealing with what I call the original Christian nationalism with with liberal <laughs> Protestantism. Right. C- trying to control the state. Uh, and warning, shouting from the rooftops uh, about the the dangers of the state and um, the uniformity mm-hmm. and utilitarianism that it oh, brings. Yeah. In fact, um, in, in one spot, I think I remember reading Machen. Uh, I can't remember if it was an article or a letter. He, he, I remember he wrote this kind of um, it's like with 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 uh, almost like incredulity at the complete absurdity of having to stand at a uh, at an intersection and not move simply because a light was red when there's mm. no cars anywhere. He just thought mm-hmm. this is completely, it just makes no sense, but here we are in this regulated- It, it violates uh, natural law. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this kind of goes to back to, sorry, Ryan, go ahead. Well, it just seems that economics is simply discerning the natural laws that God has put into his creation. Right. Yes. And then promoting human flourishing, fulfilling the cultural mandate stewardship as we understand those laws better. Yes. And, you know, the good news is, I like to remind my students, the good news is since the natural law is uh, created by the same one person that gave us, the same God that gave us the scriptures, there's no conflict between these two. Yeah. How would you, so I've got a question from uh, one of my congregants, actually. I told him I was going to be speaking with you. He's very, um, he's very well read on Austrian economics. And, and I think, I think his job is he just, I mean, he's basically studying what's going on in the world and then making, you know, uh, economic and financial recommendations based off of that. And so he, um, uh, he gave me a question to ask. And okay. so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll fire it out there. And I, th- I thought it's a good question because you've mentioned uh, in your lectures and in your interviews that I've listened to with, with Tom Woods, You've, you've talked about the importance of entrepreneurs. And uh, so the question for my congregant is, you know, the Fed's policy swung interest rates from 2.5% to 0% to 5%. Combining that with multi-trillion dollar deficits, how does that alter the calculation that entre- entrepreneurs make regarding capital investments? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, and, and, um, uh, well, we can start by simply simply saying it creates tremendous effects, right? It, it, there, there, there are major effects, there are major consequences for this. Um, uh, I would say uh, to begin with, and there's many ways you can start to answer this question. One, one thing is, as we know, uh, to keep in mind is when, the, when entrepreneurs engage in uh, productive activity, uh, their goal is not to lose money. Right. They, they don't want to they don't want to they don't want to lose money they don't want to earn losses so uh, they want to engage in productive activity uh, activity is going to earn them a profit now the good news is 
that in a in a free society when we have market prices market prices are reflections of people's subjective preferences right so if i if i decide that i um, need or i want to use more butter or hamburger or whatever my demand for those goods are going to go up and prices of those goods are going to go up and so the prices are indicative of an increase in relative about uh, relative uh, preference by people in society. So as entrepreneurs use the prices of consumer goods as well as the prices of all the factors of production that are all also imputed from the value of the consumer goods, all of the prices then, uh, the, the, the root ultimate cause of all the prices are the preferences of people in society. As entrepreneurs use those prices, to calculate profit and loss. So they can they take a house and they say, well, I think we can sell this house for $300,000. And then we estimate that, well, it's going to take this, you know, these this amount of two by fours, this amount of uh, drywall, shingles, et cetera. And if we look at how much we're going to have to pay for all that, it's going to cost us uh, $200,000. Well, if we build a house for $200,000 and sell for $300,000, that's a good thing. Right? That's, that's a, we'll, we'll be happy with that. Now, because all those prices are determined by subjective preferences, if an entrepreneur does that, then yes, he's making a profit, but he is making a profit for doing precisely what people in society want him to do, which is take, take factors that are relatively underpriced compared to the price of the final product and produce something that people value more than they value these other things or they value more than the goods that could be produced as other things, right? So that's the way entrepreneurs help satisfy people's preferences um, uh, in, in a way that allows us to, to, to obtain the most goods we could possibly can with our scarce resources. So that's what entrepreneurs do. Now, when, so this is all backdrop, right? So this is what entrepreneurs do. But then when the monetary authority, the Federal Reserve, uh, seeks to lower interest rates, they do this by, in, by by injecting money into the economy. They inject money into uh, the reserves of certain uh, banks, certain commercial banks and investment banks. And then those banks loan out money. They loan that money out. And they can even loan out more money than that because they engage in fractional reserve banking. Um, now, in order, in, in order to convince people to borrow more money, what do they do? They lower the interest rates that they charge. And so they encourage people to borrow money they encourage people to take on debt through artificially low interest rates. And of course, the way they do this in households is they encourage people to buy houses that they otherwise wouldn't buy, buy cars mm -hmm. that they wouldn't buy. But importantly, they, in, they, they encourage entrepreneurs to invest in projects they wouldn't invest in otherwise. Right? And because they're looking at this and say, well, according to my profit and loss calculations, let's say I think my uh, rate of return on this particular project today is only 5%. And if I have to pay 6% interest, I'm not going to borrow at 6% to get a 5% rate of return. I'd be a loser. And so they're not going to do that. But if the Federal Reserve injects money into the economy and, and the banks lower the interest rates on account of that, it hasn't actually increased the actual quantity of land, labor, or capital goods that the entrepreneur could use. But it makes it look like there's increased savings. It makes it look like they're more plentiful because now let's say the interest rate falls to, say, 5%. And I can look at this, I can make 6% rate of return, and now I only have to borrow five. Well, and suddenly that project that previously appeared correctly as unprofitable now appears profitable, but only because we've created more money in the system. So they will be encouraged to mm -hmm. 
engage in these unprofitable activities. And so they're led astray in their economic calculations because of these movements by the Federal Reserve. And so that's yeah. that's the main thing that happens is when the Federal Reserve acts to um, uh, intervene uh, right. in the money system with by, by artificially low interest rates, entrepreneurs are, are encouraged to uh, to invest in places in the economy where they would where they shouldn't from the perspective of the preferences of people in society. And, and, and you know, we call that malinvestment. Austrians call that malinvestment. They're investing in the wrong places in the economy. And um, it, it's like it's like actually it's like a uh, it's like a contractor that 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 thinks they have they have so many so much material to build a house and they begin building a house but but they're tricked into thinking that they have more material than they actually have and so they start with too large a foundation and before they get to the roof they've run out of resources they can't bring their project to completion and that's yeah. that that's what this monetary inflation will do yeah. and so it so the, you have a lot of entrepreneurs that have begun projects and everything looks good at first, right? There's new money out there. So we can demand more labor. We can demand more capital because the price of these things go up, nominal wages go up. But then when it becomes apparent that we can't bring all these projects to completion, that's when businesses stop. They start to liquidate. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> people are laid off. That, that's, that's recession. That's what that's recession. So, um, and then, then of course, if, if the fed decides, okay, on top of all this, of course, we've got significant price inflation, right? So that's that's the story of the 2020s, right? So you know, we we had um, two things at one time. We had the COVID lockdown mm-hmm. and had massive monetary inflation that was then uh, uh, largely funding all of the stimulus checks that went out to everybody. And then people took that and started spending it, right? Now, in a, in a way, we should be thankful that they didn't spend it all immediately, but they started spending it. And so uh, that's why, you know, prices went up at an annual rate of 8 to 9 to 10% for something, right? Yeah. So it, it wasn't because suddenly corporations got greedy, right? As if, you know, you know, yeah, corporations were falling, but they really were falling in 2022. That, uh, no. Uh, no, the, the corporations didn't suddenly become greedy in 2022 they were they were responding to to increased demand that was fueled uh, by um in, increased demand for monetary inflation on top of the fact that they had trouble producing things because of supply chain issues because of the lockdown right so so you had all those things coming coming together we, so we had significant price inflation and then what does the fed do well we need to slow the rate of the money supply and they're right about that mm. but so Instead of instead of simply saying we're not going to grow the money supply anymore, they announced what we're going to do is we have to jack up interest rates. And so that's that's what's happening now. And and uh, that's also going to have economic consequences, because now all of a sudden, if you're in a project and this includes government uh, and, and you have you have spending that requires increased borrowing to comp- bring things to completion. Now your borrowing rates are even even more high. Right. And so um, we can expect that there are even more projects that are going to be shown to be unprofitable that, that can't be brought to completion. And, and you know, even on, on the government scale, we're borrowing so much money. The federal government is borrowing so much money. And now instead of, you know, instead of being able to pay you know, like 3, 3% for their debt, now they're close to paying 5%. That's a significant increase in, in, mm. in, in interest. And so the percentage of our federal budget 
that's going to have to go towards um, funding uh, the debt is 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 going to be increasing as well. So it's um, uh, there are significant impacts all across the board. But um, to, to to pointedly answer your 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 friends your your congress question, it, it makes it makes wise entrepreneurship all the more difficult because it it. Um, it in some sense falsifies uh, the 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 right. right signals that they use to make wise decisions. Yeah, yeah Westminster Larger Catechism 141 um, makes it really clear that we are to act justly and to seek justice in commerce. And if if we're correct, um, the the magistrate's responsibility there is to enforce broken contracts to punish those who do evil regarding their contracts and their business dealings. And uh, larger catechism 141 also communicates that we are to endeavor to lawfully procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as ourselves. And so when the magistrate, when, when the civil servants fiddle with the interest rates, they actually, they actually break God's law. You know, they actually hinder people from uh, being able to preserve and further their wealth in a, 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 uh, a lawful way. Westminster larger catechism 142 uh, and by the way, both of these catechism questions have no lines about civil servants having exceptions right. to these rules. Right. Um, uh, it, 142 says that we are prohibited from theft, receiving what is stolen. We're prohibited from using false weights and measures, which seems to be what's happening when they're fiddling with interest rates is they are basically creating false weights and measures. And we're also prohibited from economically oppressing other people, which when we start mess, when, when politicians start messing with uh, interest rates, this is one of the, uh, the in their mind, unforeseeable consequences. But for the Austrians, it's amazing how the Austrian school always seems to see this coming. And everybody else is like, wow, you know, just how could we predict these things? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yes. but, uh, who knew? Yeah, who knew? Exactly. So we have the, this narrowly defined box or office for the magistrate. And they veer outside of their, when it comes to commerce, they veer outside of their lane. And it leads to all kinds of problems. In addition to being a professor of economics, you're also an elder yeah. in a reformed church. So, you know, let's bring this out of economics and down to pastoral care. What kind of pastoral care problems can potentially land before us as, as pastors um, because of these types of things? Well, that's a good question. I would say, I mean, in many, in many respects, we're, we're left um, I mean, I'd say the, the vast majority of us uh, aren't, aren't um, at least like in my church, for instance, we don't have any bankers. Uh, so it, it's, we don't have to sort of do much counseling on the, hey, maybe you shouldn't inflate. Maybe you shouldn't expand mm -hmm. credit artificially. Um, but it's usually trying to help uh, people that are living in the aftermath of all of this, right? The people mm. that have had uh, their wealth eroded and they don't even, people don't even understand that their health is, that their wealth is being eroded. So they don't understand that the situation that we're in is, is because of the previous manipulation of the monetary system by mm -hmm. our, uh, the magistrate and, and the agents hired by the magistrate and chartered by the magistrate. So um, I think, I think it is helpful. I mean, it's 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 a, a bit of a, it's a challenge because I mean, uh, you know, pastorally, when someone is suffering, um, you know, getting an economics lecture is probably not the first thing that they need. Uh, right. But but it but it can be helpful 
And, 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 and I think more than anything, it's, it's helped us some in, 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 in planning. I mean, we, it's, we mm. have other elders that are, uh, they're, they're not, they're not economists like me, but they have a good sort of intuitive understanding of how the economy works. And so, um, I don't. I don't have to. I don't have to do a tremendous amount of, uh, shall we say, lobbying, if you will, to when we talk about. Well, you know, as we're planning the budget for next year, it's mm-hmm. likely that um, these expenses are going to be higher. So we need to. We need to. We need to. You know, plan for that on our budget. So it helps. It does help mm. us plan some better, and it also helps. Um, I think it help. It can help the, the the deacons to be a little more aware of what could be coming down the pike. So um, in, in that regard, I think it's, I think it's helpful. Um, and just in, in private conversations, for sure, uh, we can, we can, we can mm-hmm. I think, enlighten people about uh, how, uh, how the magistrate can, can, uh, yeah. can uh, you know, abuse their power. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is like when you, you talked about um, you know, changing the interest rate can lead to these oppressive things, even even if we would leave the interest rate issues out of the question, the fact that when the Fed increases the money supply, it always enters the hands of particular people first. Right? Right. And it tends to be the friends of the Fed that gets the money first. And so they're able to act and buy things before prices have gone up. Right? But it's only through this after this whole process of the inflation takes place, then, then the, the, pr- the price of everywhere has gone up. But there are certain people that live on fixed incomes usually elderly people, poorer people, um, people that don't see a, see, see a dime of the new money, they're st- stuck with their, with their old income, but they still have to pay higher prices. Right? So these are people that are obviously harmed, uh, oppressed by the Fed. And so even, even if we would leave, say, the interest rate per se out of this, just the, the way the Fed injects the money supply yeah. and who gets the new money and who doesn't get a dime of it, um, there's no way that we can say that 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 the that the Fed is acting mm-hmm. justly, right? Right. I mean, in the aggregate, you might be able to say, well, yeah, but GDP when they when they when they inflate and they lower interest rates, GDP will go up by one percent. Well, it doesn't go up by one percent for everybody. Yeah. If it benefits some people, it's expense of others. So how yeah. can we say how can we say that's just? And so I, I do think it's helpful for people to understand that. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to be able to sort of plan as churches that we don't, we as churches, we don't want to get caught up in the inflationary boom. We don't, we want to be wise when the, when the, when everything looks great, we want to be careful before undertaking large projects, before we, 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 we engage in ventures that are going to, that are going to cost and that we're going to have to borrow significant amounts of money for because, um, we may be doing this at the at the top of a of a yeah. malinvestment bubble, and then we could put the get the put the church in financial yeah. uh, financial distress yeah. because we get caught up in the same inflationary fervor that everybody else does. Yeah. Well, you mentioned fixed incomes. I mean, the average um, to me, if I was going to give an elevator speech to an elder, you know, they get trapped in a in an elevator with me in, in Richmond, and somehow this comes up, and we're stuck for three minutes. I would say, you know, the average congregant in the PCA, um, it, you know, the average church is under 100 people. And a lot of a lot of people are over the age of 50 and many are living on fixed income. I don't know yeah. about the OPC. Yeah. But, um, you know, whenever we the Fed, uh, you know, does its thing, whenever politicians manipulate the marketplace, 
and inflation happens, that negatively impacts that the sweet little old lady that's been faithfully sitting in your pew longer than you've been alive. And so you need to, you know, you need to consider these things. And then sadly, sadly, many of our brothers in the PCA, they're very, you know, redeemed the city oriented. And so they're very much, they very much care about uh, the the poor in the inner city. And they, you know, they're, they're trying to redeem the city and all that stuff. And, but when you talk to them about economics, they lean more towards Keynesian and Marxist policies and, and uh, you know, they, you know, uh, maybe they've read something by Mises at, at some point, but they just don't see how, um, how what the government is doing economically is ultimately negatively impacting all the people that they want to see flourish in, in the inner city. Um, but anyway, so that's right. my, my little rant um, for, for the no, day. No, I, th- um, I, th- I, th- I think that's right. It's like, um, you know, no one, no one would say that that's not a good end, right? I mean, we should be, we want to redeem, we want to spread the gospel everywhere, redeem everybody. Uh, the, the the up and out as well as the down and out, right? We want to redeem everybody as we can. We want to share the gospel with everyone. We want to encourage everyone to try to live productively, um, but we have to we have to make sure that it, it's not just the ends that make something virtuous, right? We have mm-hmm. to be we have to use just means to achieve just ends. That's right. And so that's why I, I do think um, I mean having a good understanding of the ethics of property. And, and what the magistrate is required to do and what they're prohibited from doing is important. Having an understanding of economic law is important because, you know, we don't we don't want to we don't want to do something. Uh, we don't want to do something to make things worse. Right. If, if we if we approach a pro, an economic problem from a, with faulty economic theory, a faulty understanding of economic law, then we're going to we're going to be encouraged to en- engage in economic policy that's destructive. It'd be, it'd be like, you know, well. We know that uh, we want the patient to get better, so let's apply leeches. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting the patient to get better, but if we try a method that is is destructive, the patient's not going to get better, right? Same mm-hmm. thing economically. If we want to uh, uh, try to promote human flourishing within and redemption with material uh, help within a society, and we do it with uh, faulty measures, we're going to get bad outcomes. And I think, you know, in the Presbyterian Church, you know, we obviously don't tell people how to vote, uh, at least the PCA um, and the OPC. You know, Nate Park churches are not—elders are not telling people how to vote. I know that's, that's a right. that's characteristic right. of other faith communions where they will have, yes. you know, a presidential candidate come and—, and, and yeah. what, whatever, whatever happens behind that pulpit, I'm not really sure what, what verb to use. But, yeah. um, but we do instruct the people in natural law and uh, the— uh, the scriptural law, yeah. and if we have a faulty understanding of economic law, which is which is natural law, I I, I would argue, and so if a, if a guy adopts this Marxist or Keynesian view of economics, he's not able to disciple his congregation as well. And so right. when they are hearing or seeing signs for such and such candidate who wants to uh, redistribute wealth through taxation or other means, the congregation, the congregate even that elder, his alarm bells aren't going to go off because he hasn't understood God's natural law as it's expressed in economics. So I think this yeah. is an important uh, point to make, uh, that, and you know, just means for just ends is, is so overlooked, at least in the PCA. I don't know about yeah. uh, the OPC, um, but at least in the PCA, mm-hmm. you know, we actually have churches where their <clears throat> motto is loving people, places, and things to life. Well, <laughs> I don't know how you love a thing to life. Wow. Uh, Wow. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I, Ryan, this but this whole to to kind of riff off what you just said, this kind of goes back to one of the tensions that we have in the PCA is um, so many people we we view the standards as the doctrinal system we have to know in order to get ordained, but it's not a discipleship tool. Yeah. Well, when you read the Westminster Larger Catechisms on the Ten Commandments, they are incredibly helpful. Oh, you know, they're yeah. they're incredible they're they're incredibly instructive in what we can and cannot do. And if we just take our larger catechism questions and we put that up next to a natural law theory like Austrian economics or Keynesian or Chicago or, or Marx, we easily, we can, we can very quickly go, well, this one's out. You know, yeah. we can't, we can't find compatibility to scriptures. I mean, just read through the book of Proverbs. Yeah. Mm. You know um, what the Proverbs say is that a, a man whose hand is slack will come to poverty. Yeah. Well, any economic system, any fiscal or monetary policy that makes it possible for a man to be enriched by having a slack hand instead of a hand that's at the plow, that is an ungodly economic system. It's it's actually it's not compatible with so-called human flourishing, right? right. So it, 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 this is this is where uh, you know this in the overarching conversation I think of this podcast, as I understand it, is the Westminster standards are actually a very helpful tool for discipling our people and helping them understand the kingship in every the kingship of Jesus in every area of life. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I would say it, it applies like in every area of life. I, you know, um, it is not uncommon uh, for uh, people, at least in my experience, it's not uncommon for people to um, for, 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 to hear, say, people say, well, you know, you Presbyterians, you care a lot about doctrine. But so often it just it's just dry doctrine. And um, I just want, you know, I want to know, I, I, I want to know more than doctrine. I want to know more than the standards. The standards are fine, but I want to know, uh, you know, I want to know Jesus. I want to know God. And, and of course, yeah, just knowing intellectually the standards is, is not going to give you a relationship with the Lord. It's not going to, you're not going to be justified if, if, you know, if, if you have Westminster in your heart, that's not going to, going to justify you. However, as I tell people, I said, I, what it, I, I came to believe, um, and I must say, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, it really wasn't until after I became an elder that I felt I like I had to affirm the standards. And so I, I had not actually read them cover. I hadn't read the, the confession and the catechisms uh, until then. And I read them. And of course, I was looking for like the red flag, is there anything that I don't agree with? And I didn't find anything. So I said, yes, I can affirm that. But it was only after I became an elder where I felt I need, now we're actually having, you know, you're, you're having to um, engage in ministry in a church. You said, I need to, mm -hmm. I actually need to know the standards. And the more I got, to, I started reading them, uh, thinking on them, reading the scriptures that point to these doctrines, it became very clear to me that, that our problem is not that we, know the standards too well the problem is we don't know them nearly well enough but if we really understood the standards we would understand what the scripture says about who we are about who christ is we would understand the nature of god's forgiveness our own sinfulness we would understand the blessings of redemption and and then also understand how we live lives of gratitude um uh, applying uh, all of God's law as laid out in the commandments in that in that beautiful section of the larger catechism, 
all of that would all of that would be part and parcel of our life and not a single not a single word of that is dry doctrine all of that is christian life and so um i yeah i i find uh, the catechism and the larger catechism, especially when it deals in, in that that whole section, when it's it's basically comment, commentating, uh, commenting, commenting on uh, God's law and the commandments, just to be so so helpful because it's it's so convicting, right? I mean, you can't read that and not be convicted, and then so helpful to understand. Okay, how how do we apply God's word to? A whole host of different uh, circumstances, uh, either in the economic world or in, you know any other aspect of our life. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, that's a great uh, <laughs> that's a great place uh, to to leave off. Um, where, um, but what uh, for for both of you? What are things that encourage you about the Reformed Church uh, uh, now? What are some concerns you have for Reformed Christians? Uh, as we Boy. as we look to the future huh. pietism that that's that's for me i mean i i yeah. um i i'm a i believe in the spirituality of the church i absolutely do um but i think i think sometimes in the conversation we lose the difference between the church institution and the church organic mm. and so what ends up happening is when we wave that flag really hard we end up you know creating a culture in our church where people think that Monday through Saturday is just for reading their Bibles and keeping their heads down. And then they show back up to church. So that's, to me, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's my concern. Yeah. Um, I think that is a concern. I think sometimes, um, we have a tendency to pick and choose what areas we, in which we want to emphasize the spirituality of the church and what areas we don't. Right. So, um, it's, it's, we don't, we don't emphasize the spirituality of the church so much when we're dealing with issues of abortion, shall we say, but when we're dealing with issues of property, well, then it's the spirituality of the church, you know, because yeah. God doesn't tell us what, uh, you know, what, the, what, what the tax rates should be or what have you. Well, maybe God does have something to say about what our tax rates should be, right? If, 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 um, if the magistrate wants to uh, assess a 90% tax rate, maybe uh, we could say that's confiscatory and that's a violation of justice. Mm. So, yeah. you know, I think that, that I also uh, believe in the spirituality of church too, but then we, then as you know, as you know, we have to grapple with the moral teaching as well. Mm. You know, how should we then live in light of what God tells us? And I think that sometimes uh, we don't want to really mm. deal with that. I think we're in a cultural moment that makes it harder to deal with that. I mean, in some yeah. sense, we, we feel like we're just so we're hunkering down because uh, the, the broader culture is so confused and now not just not just confused, but also aggressive, right? Aggressive against the church. I mean, in some sense, we were OK and sort of complacent if they were just confused, but uh, they weren't attacking the church and they, they weren't didn't seem to be making inroads. Um mm. And I, I remember, quite frankly, uh, when I started in, um, in my career in academia, when I was aware of postmodernism and deconstructionism and stuff, but I really, I mean, I took it seriously enough, but I just didn't, I was never concerned about it at all because I thought this is something that is going to be limited to the humanities and the humanities, it makes sense. I mean, there's always going to be, uh, not even everybody in the humanities was like this. There was going to be a, a few, you know, I don't know what you want to flaky people, I guess, for lack of better words, confused people. I had, I mean, 
the 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 speed with which things have turned culturally mm. uh, relating to everything from identity to uh, of all sorts. Um, that's what surprised me. And I think in some sense, um, we were sort of um, unprepared for that. Mm. And so the one of my concerns, in addition to what what you've raised, I think would be the um, the I guess in some sense, just like always, right? It's the it's the it's the potential worldliness of the church. Mm. And, you know, the what's what's worldly changes because what's hip and cool is going to be different from decade to decade. But there's always we always have to be eternally vigilant of making sure that we think Christianly about things using scriptural categories um, instead of just sort of coasting along and, 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 and making sure we're nice to people given the culture. And um, when, when, you know, when the, when the unpardonable sin ceases to be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin becomes not being nice to people, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a big problem because then it's kind of every, anything goes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I, 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 I'm hopeful because I do think that it, it's clear that we we that, that 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 the reformed churches in general as institutions are still uh desire to be faithful to the scriptures and are still desirous of thinking christianly about these things right i mean mm -hmm. in terms in, in our cultural moment um uh we have uh people in the opc and the pca and in other napart denominations thinking seriously about issues related to identity and um, cultural things, um, I think that um, I think we're responding better to you know a whole host of cultural issues that we were I think um, kind of behind the curve on a little bit just because of the, the rapidity with which things have turned. But um, I think that we are responding biblically to these things. Um, you know, who, who knows what that means regard with regards to membership. But it's God's church. The Holy Spirit will do His work, and so um, you know if we if we believe that, we should be hopeful regardless. But um, but I, I do think that the fact I mean if, if I would be really concerned if I would see in in the leadership uh, you know uh, of our churches an, an increased departure from the Word, that would make me the most concerned. And I don't I don't see that. So I think that as long as we're faithful to the Word. We can provide faithful answers to all of these issues, all these questions, and even as things wax and wane. Hmm. Amen. Well, thank you both for coming on uh, the show today. I really appreciate your time. This has been enlightening and uh, confronted some misconceptions, I think, and hopefully will uh, provide for a better way forward uh, for the church and to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for joining the conversation on the Westminster Standard, which is the podcast of Jude 3. For additional resources or to make a donation, visit our website, jude3pca.org. I will be away at a funeral next week, so the episode for October 16th will be a lecture on J. Gresham Machen given to the congregation I serve. And be on the lookout on October 30th for an interview with Paul Harrell, one of the Jonesboro Seven. They were investigated, charged, convicted, and censured by their own session 
only to be completely exonerated by the Presbyterian Church in America's Standing Judicial Commission. The case is both fascinating and frightening and contains important lessons for us today in the Presbyterian Church in America. Thank you. Thank you.